You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So, as Ian said, today I'm talking about shalom, and I feel like I need to start with a bit of a confession, which is that for a long time, this was one of those words that I didn't really understand, but I pretended I understood because it makes you seem a bit cleverer. I laughed when Ian asked me what he wanted me to preach on, because he sent me this. The Jewish concept of shalom is often defined as peace, but it means so much more than that. We dive deep into this amazing Jewish concept, and I laughed because this bit the Jewish concept of shalom is often defined as peace, but it means so much more than that, was for a long time basically about the sum total of what I understood by the word shalom. Everyone would say things like, oh, I know it's translated as peace, but it means so much more than that. But preachers would never actually say what more than that they meant. So I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that we, you know, it's translated into English as peace, but it means so much more than that. And I just hope that no one ever asked me what more than that actually meant. So I think we're going to start by looking at a couple of Bible verses and see if we can start to build um, a bit of a better definition. This is a verse from uh, Joshua chapter 8 in the Old Testament when the prophet Joshua builds an altar to God. And verse 31 says, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. Now, the word for uncut stones here is shalem, which has the same root as shalom, because instead of peace, a better understanding of shalom might be wholeness or completeness. Shalom is when nothing is missing, which is why shalem is used to describe uncut stones. These are stones which haven't been chipped away at. No one's altered the shape of these stones to make them fit whatever building project you're trying to use them for. Before they've been chipped, before they've been broken down, these stones are complete. They're whole Nothing is missing. And that's what shalom is. Just before that, in the Old Testament, we find these verses in Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, 13 to 15. It says this, Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy, one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. This is a law saying that stones should be the correct size. Stone weights should be the correct size. It's for people who are selling stones for building. They need to be accurate, not reduced in order to cheat customers. When you pretend that you're selling them three bags of chippings and actually it's only two and a half bags, they need to be the full weight, the complete weight. That's what the law is saying here. Not a little bit cut off to cheat someone. Proof that being ripped off by builders is an industry as old as time. Um, So shalom does mean peace in some circumstances. But it's also more than that. Completeness. Wholeness. Nothing missing. Part of the reason that we translate this as peace is that 
when we are complete, when we feel whole, when nothing is missing in our lives, we feel at peace, don't we? I'm sure you can all think of examples of some time in your life where you felt that nothing is missing and as a result, you felt at peace. I was thinking of examples in mine and I was thinking of my wedding day millions of years ago in the dark and distant past and there was a moment in the evening reception of my wedding day where I was standing on the dance floor and we had this amazing band that played and I remember looking around and you know what it's like when you know when on your wedding day everyone comes for this wedding day so we were living in Swansea at the time and most of our mates had moved away from Swansea and I remember looking around and thinking there's Chris and Emma from Manchester there's my mates from Brighton there's my mates from Cardiff there's my mates from London and they're all here and then my family are all here as well and I remember thinking at that moment, I must remember this moment because I'm in this great place dancing to this great band and basically all the people that I love are within about 10 meters of me. This doesn't happen very often. I must remember this moment. That's shalom, completeness well-being, nothing missing. We use this um, definition, this understanding of shalom a lot in Oasis. As I'm sure most of you will know, we run about 50 schools all around the country. And when we become responsible for a new school, one of the first things that we do is to speak to all of the teachers. We get all the teachers together in one room and we go and talk to them about what we believe about education. To be honest, when you take over a new school, the first thing the teachers really want to know is, are you going to sack me if I'm not a Christian? Or do I have to become a Christian? Or do I have to start going to church now and so what we do is we send a couple of people often it's Steve and sometimes it's a guy called John Murphy who's the the chief exec of that bit of oasis that runs schools and sometimes it's Jill Rowe who you might know who's spoken here a few times she's our director of ethos and formation and what will happen is that somebody will go to one of these and you know, assembly halls, we'll get all the teachers together. And then what we'll do is we'll talk about the Oasis philosophy of education. We'll talk about something like, we'll talk about theology and ethos. We will say, no, you don't have to start going to church. No, you don't have to become a Christian. You don't even have to believe in God. But what we have is a theology. And out of that theology, we have ethos statements. You don't have to believe the theology but you do have to teach according to these ethos statements. So we will say something like, one of the five theological statements we believe in is a God of love, a God who is love, and a God who loves all. You don't have to believe in a God of love. You don't have to believe in God at all. But the ethos statement that comes out of that theology is that when you're standing up in front of those 30 kids, you have to teach like you love them. You have to love them. Regardless of their background, regardless of their behavior, you have to treat every single one of those 30 kids the same. You don't have to believe the theology. You do have to live out the ethos. And we have a, a bit of a, a philosophy of education, and it's based on three Hebrew words, and one of them is shalom. Shalom, yada, and rabbi 
Rabbi basically means teacher, and we use that to talk about inspirational leadership. Yada means to know, to understand, to experience something. And we use that to talk about deep learning, learning about the whole of life, not just exam results, although obviously exam results are important. And we use shalom to talk about wholeness and well-being. This is a bit from that philosophy of education. It says, we seek to ensure that every classroom encounter, each piece of curriculum planning, each assessment experience are all shaped, informed and delivered in the light of our desire for wholeness and well-being in the widest sense of the word for everyone at every level of their lives. And even though that's education speak, all of it is rooted in theology. I listened to Jo's talk a few weeks ago on this series where she talked about uh, salvation and how salvation is about so much more than just praying a prayer so you get to go to the good place, not the bad place after you die, which is, you know, definitely what I've been taught. Lots of us have, I'm sure. But as Jo said, it's so much more than that. The story of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is about the here and now. That's what she said. We are called to so much more than just getting an escape route to go to heaven. At Oasis Church Waterloo, we often say that if the good news really is good news, it has to be good news for every person at every level. Physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, environmentally, economically. What that is is the practical outworking of shalom. Completeness, nothing missing. Good news physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally. Jesus came to bring shalom. And that's why here in Waterloo, in Hull, that's why our churches are so integrated into our communities. It isn't that we're following Jesus, which makes us nice people, so we decide to do nice community things. It's that the very act of running a food bank, giving debt advice, that is the good news of Jesus. That is the gospel. On Wednesday this week, a couple of days ago, me and somebody called Rebecca Gibson, who some of you might know, she works with us in Waterloo. She's on our church leadership team and she runs our advice centre. We do a lot of uh, work around debt, benefits, immigration, you know, other types of advice, housing, other bits and pieces. Um, and Rebecca and I met with some people from the Tackling Poverty and Cost of Living team at the Department of Work and Pensions. Interesting, having caused quite a lot of that. They're now trying to tackle it. Um, <laughs> um, so we, um, their head of tackling poverty came down with uh, five or six other people from her team. Um, and they came to talk to us because they wanted to know what we were doing and kind of how what we were doing was making an impact in Waterloo in terms of tackling poverty and this cost of living crisis. And I mean, it was a great meeting because it's not very often that you get a senior civil servant there and you can say, what you need to do is totally change this policy directly to their face and they have to smile back at you. It's great. So we go on as part of this conversation to talking about PIP. Does anyone know what PIP is? It's personal independence payments. It's the, the kind of replacement for the disability living allowance that, that people would get. And we talked very directly 
with the head of tackling poverty for the DWP about how terrible PIP can be. The PIP assessment is a terrible thing and terrible results often happen. If you then appeal PIP assessments, you have to go through a mandatory reconsideration, which I like to call the mandatory time-wasting period because hardly ever anything changes at that point, and then you can take it to an independent tribunal. 65% of cases that get to an independent tribunal get overturned. And if you come to our building and you get one of our advisors to help you, 100% of those initial assessments gets overturned. As soon as you bring in the independent body, suddenly people can access PIP and get more money than they did beforehand. A couple of months ago, we, um, we worked with a, a woman that I'm going to call Sarah. It's not her real name. She came into our centre. She has multiple physical and mental health conditions. Uh, but when she applied for PIP, she was only awarded a really small amount, nowhere near what she should have got. So the next step, as I said, is to apply for this mandatory reconsideration. But at that point, her mental health was really bad. She did put this in. The DWP messed it up and didn't put it forward for the mandatory reconsideration. She didn't want to push it because she was worried that they'd take away this small bit of PIP that she was getting. So she left it. She came to us when she was really struggling, really in need of help. One of our advisors looked into this, immediately thought there were grounds to overturn this decision. We lodged an appeal, we worked on it for six months. And six months later, we got a decision. The DWP admitted that they'd got it wrong. And they awarded her an extra £95 a week and back pay of just over £18,000. I mean, that is transformational, isn't it? That is the gospel. That is utterly transformed her life. She said, can I do anything? We said, can you just write the story up? Are you okay if we tell the story? And she said, yeah, I'll write you something. This is what she said. Oasis's help has had a life-changing impact. When I thought I'd done the right thing to try and improve my situation, I was constantly being fobbed off by the DWP. The combination of poor mental health and fear of having my benefits cut completely if I made too much of a fuss meant that I gave up following up on this. My advisor worked with me and didn't make me feel like I'd done things wrong, which is how I'd felt before. It's more than benefits advice. Coming to the Oasis Centre has become part of my routine. I have a space at Oasis. It's the only place I can come when I'm up or when I'm down. I've come in at times at tears, and I've come in when I've been feeling happy. The impact of the change in getting the correct benefits has been overwhelming. I've gone from being fearful about paying even for the basics to have confidence that I now have enough to live. I've bought some white goods and other items for my home, which have really improved my quality of life. It's really nourishing for your soul to be able to afford the necessities without fear. Without Oasis's help, I would probably still be at home, struggling to ever go out, spending most of my days worrying and in tears, sewing up holes in my underpants. My daughter used to worry about me a lot. I would be very worried about me having enough money, and now she doesn't worry nearly as much, which has also had a really positive effect on me and improved my relationship with her. Things still aren't easy, 
And while getting the support changed hasn't changed my complex medical conditions, I now have the comfort blanket of getting the right amount of benefits, knowing Oasis will support me, and not having the fear of the DWP ringing me every day. If the good news really is good news, it has to be good news for every person at every level. Physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, environmentally. That is shalom. One more story, and then I'll stop. The Bible tells us again and again that shalom isn't just about individuals. We've individualized our religion a bit, I think, haven't we? Particularly in the Western world. But shalom was for communities. So what does this mean for Bath? Let's look at one more verse in the Old Testament. This is from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet, and at the time that he lived in, the country that he lived in, Judah was falling apart, basically. The people had moved away from following God. And Jeremiah was pretty unpopular because he was trying to call them back into this relationship with God, trying to get them to turn away from this new way of living. And by the time we get to this bit, chapter 29, God's people are in exile in Babylon, And chapter 29 is a letter written by Jeremiah to these people who are in exile in Babylon. Um, There are other prophets around at this time, false prophets, and they are basically telling the people whatever they want to hear. So they're all saying, don't worry about being in exile. We'll all be back in Judah soon. It'll be fine. But Jeremiah's take is very different. He says that people will be in exile for 70 years. He doesn't mean exactly 70 years. He means a lifetime. And then we get to this verse. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Or as the living version of the Bible puts it, seek the shalom of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in the shalom of it shall you have shalom. Now, I'm always wary of taking individual verses out of the Bible and taking them out of context. There's another verse in this chapter where people do this all the time. A few verses later, verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How many times have you seen that on greeting cards or on people's fridge magnets or something? And people use it to say, you're going to be fine because I know the plans. God's going to prosper you. Actually, that was written by Jeremiah, to these people who were in exile. So I'm wary about taking the odd verse and pulling them out, because obviously the context of which Jeremiah is writing, we know just from that last couple of minutes, is very different to the context that we sit in here today. But I do think there is a universal truth here in this verse that we can live by. Seek the shalom of the city. What would shalom look like in Bath? I looked up some statistics about Bath. Across the city, about 12% of children are living in poverty. In some areas, that goes up to almost one in three. 13% of people in the city are living in fuel poverty, although I hate that term, because it's poverty. It's not fuel poverty. It's not food poverty. It's poverty. But 13% can't pay their fuel bills. I know those numbers are significantly higher in London, but still... 
It's a lot of people. What would shalom look like in Bath? Wholeness, well-being, nothing missing. What would shalom look like? I think it looks like this. I think it looks like your impact report. I think it looks like I came to Oasis Pantry because my sister was coming and she told me about it. I live locally and it really helps me financially. The cost of living is just too high. If I save money on food, then I can spend that on other essentials like heating, which has gone up so much. I couldn't manage without it now. I think that's what Shalom looks like in Bath. I think it looks like everything that you're doing in this building and beyond every day of this week. There's more to do, isn't there? But I'm encouraged that you're already working towards that. Seek the shalom of the city. One last quote, and then I'll leave a bit of space to reflect on all of this. This is Eleanor Roosevelt. It isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it. One must work at it. Seek the shalom of the city. Not sit back and wait for the shalom of the city to happen. Get your hands dirty and work at it. Just for the next few minutes, I'm just going to invite you to just take a bit of time to, to respond to that, to reflect on it. And maybe to consider these two questions. What does shalom look like in your life? And where is it missing? And how could you go about adding to that peace, finding more completeness, finding more wholeness? Is there a conversation you need to have in this room? And secondly, what does shalom look like in Bath? And how can we continue to work towards it? You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.